0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, and good afternoon. My name is Carla Thorson, and I'm pleased to be the moderator today for this special Commonwealth Club program, Ukraine Under Siege, What's Next? And I would add, what can be done? Welcome to all, and thank you to our partners at World Affairs for joining us today as well. I'm the new Vice President of Programs at the Commonwealth Club. And I'm really pleased to be joining this team. And while I'm delighted to moderate this conversation today, I'm also sorry to have the focus be on a Russian invasion of Ukraine, a war that I personally had hoped to never see and one that really should never have begun. So as we're talking today, it's been a little over a week since Russian forces advanced into Ukraine from the North, South and East and are attempting to lay siege to the capital city of Kyiv and the second largest city of Kharkiv, as well as other major population centers. And while President Zelensky rallies his forces and his people, vowing to fight the Russian takeover of his country, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians, mostly women and children, are fleeing into neighboring countries in Eastern Europe. And the UN Refugee Agency reports that close to three quarters of a million refugees are already in Poland, Romania, Hungary, and Moldova and these numbers are continuing to grow. The battle currently unfolding within Ukraine's borders is the largest military action in Europe since the end of World War II, and it threatens to destabilize Europe and the NATO alliance and will have major implications for the global economy to come. Joining me today are Dr. Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, who joins us today with her expertise as former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, with a focus on arms control and an extensive background on U.S.-Russia and U.S.-Ukrainian relations. Rose Godmuller, former Deputy Secretary General of NATO from 2016 to 2019, and Stephen Pfeiffer, Former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, from 1998 to 2000, and with many more years at the State Department and on the National Security Council, focused on U.S. relations with Russia and Eastern Europe. And I would add that all three of you have deep expertise on questions of arms control and weapons of mass destruction, a subject that we can't ignore when it comes to um, a military engagement involving Russia. So before we jump into our conversation, a reminder that we want your audience questions. So if you have a question for any of our guests or for me, please do put them in the YouTube chat feature and questions will be forwarded to me during the program. So I hope to get to as many of them as possible in the latter half of the program. So with that, um, let's get started. I think everyone joining us today is probably following the daily news reports to a greater or lesser degree. So I'd like to get a bit beyond the immediate headlines and get a higher level view of the origins of the conflict and the risks that you all see both in the near term and also for the future. So I think I'll start with Steve, and do know that I may direct a question to, to one of you individually, but I do want to encourage everyone to feel that they can chime in on any subject that we take on and have this really be a conversation. So, Steve, I'm going to start with you. Having been ambassador to Ukraine in its early years of independence, can you give us some perspective on the history of the relationship between an independent Ukraine and Russia what has happened, and what has prompted Russian President Putin to resort to a full-scale invasion of Ukraine.
2: Yes. Now, the, um, this crisis really had its roots, I would say, back in 2013, at a time when Ukraine, under the Send government, had no desire to join NATO, but it wanted to sign an association agreement with the European Union. And in late 2013, the Russian government put a lot of pressure on then-President Yanukovych not to do that. In the end, Mr. Yanukovych decided not to sign, and that triggered that night the first of the first demonstrations of the Maidan revolution. And then over those three months, the revolution really morphed from a pro-European Union revolution into an uh, uh, anti-Yanukovych because of his growing autocracy. After violence, Yanukovych fled. There was an interim government. They said the first goal was to sign the association agreement. And I think the Kremlin panicked. You saw Russia cease Crimea, provoke the conflict in Donbass, which took 14,000 lives over eight years. And that's kind of the, the the background. But it reached a point, I believe, in the last few months where President uh, Putin had two real concerns. One concern was about domestic politics in Russia, and that was a concern that a Western-oriented, democratic, economically successful Ukraine would be a nightmare for the Kremlin, because that kind of Ukraine would cause Russians to say, why can't we have the same democracy, the same political voice they have in Ukraine? So, in one sense, this is about Russian domestic politics, and it's very much about regime survival for the Kremlin. The other concern was that Ukraine was irretrievably slipping out of Moscow's orbit and in towards the West. Now, I would argue Russian policy over the past eight years did more than anything to push Ukraine away, to push it towards the West, and to stoke up interest in joining NATO. You know, Ten years ago, in a poll, you know, 10% of Ukrainians would have said that they wanted to see their country in NATO. The last poll I saw last week had 62%. That's all a result of Russian action. So I think what the Russians are trying to achieve now, I fear, is a, a pretty maximalist goal on the part of Putin, uh, which is to occupy a good part of Ukraine, to get to Kyiv, to depose the current government, uh, and put in place a different government that would be more pro-Russian. Now, if they achieve that, and I'm not sure that they can—I mean, certainly the Russians have on their side the advantage of numbers and mass and modern equipment—but, uh, The Ukrainians have on their side determination, tenacity, and a real desire to protect their country and preserve their independence. Uh, But even if the Russians, at the end of the day, win, uh, and they put that pro-Russian government in, that government doesn't last for two minutes after the Russians leave. So in sort of what you might call from the Moscow's the best case where they win the military battle, they will be occupying Ukraine for years or decades with a hostile and angry population
1: So you may have answered this question but uh, but I, I've uh, heard recently that your colleague at Stanford Ambassador Michael McCall, has been quoted as saying that he doesn't really think Putin has an end game, that he doesn't really know what he's going to be able to do. So do you think he's right about that and are there short-term objectives that you think that Putin can achieve?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you look at the scale of the military operation, I I think when the operation began last Thursday, you could see two possibilities. One would have been consistent with Putin saying, we're not going to occupy the country, and we want to demilitarize the country. But that would have been an operation focused around Donbass and perhaps attacking and degrading Ukrainian military forces in the eastern part of the country. Uh, But you now see the offensive really coming from multiple directions with a huge push, although it's been stalled for the last three days, coming out of Belarus towards Kyiv. And so that leads me to think that you know, his objective is not just something around in the East, uh, but that he has a much wider plan, including taking Kyiv. I hope I'm wrong on that. I would be happy to be wrong on that, because that might open up some possibilities to resolve this. But if he is going after Kyiv, then I think it's uh, it, it it then makes it very hard for diplomacy to find some kind of a middle ground between uh, Putin and the Ukrainian government.
1: Thank you, Steve. Well, let's come back to that question. I want to turn now to to Rose godemuller and and ask what about the longer term objectives? There's certainly been a lot of discussion about whether or not Putin's ultimate goal is to undermine the NATO alliance. Um, and that he really won't stop with Ukraine. So this question is for you. What are the risks to the NATO alliance and neighboring states if the conflict were to escalate? And how well is NATO positioned to respond? Just a small question.
3: Thank you, Carla. I did want to add also to the point about, uh, you know, what's driving Putin And uh, it is very clear that he has been isolated seriously during this pandemic period and has been stewing in his own juices. Last summer, he published a 6,000-word treatise talking about the necessity of of, uh, recreating the Slavic heartland, as I call it, wanting to put Ukraine back into a confederation with Russia and Belarus. Belarus protecting Russian-speaking peoples. Uh, I thought it was amusing today that Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, said, uh, we don't need our Russian-speaking peoples protected. Protect your own Russian-speaking peoples inside the borders of Russia. So, but that seems to be one of Putin's goals. It's... uh, it's a you know conservative, nationalistic approach, also, I think, related to his sense of religiosity as well, linked to the, the Russian Orthodox Church and the fact that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has set itself up as an independent body, independent of the Moscow Patriarchate. All of these are things that have really been eating at Putin. The other factor here is that he's in a small bubble with very few advisors, and these advisors don't... You know don't give him information that he doesn't want to hear uh, but we call yes men I think and they are mostly men I think there's one woman among them possibly but uh, honestly it's uh, in a way it's a it's a classic kind of uh, story of a, an isolated dictator and uh, that' That is, I think, a really important danger now. As to the danger to the NATO alliance per se, NATO, uh, yes, has been very concerned about Russia since Crimea. It was at that time that Russia upped its defense... I'm sorry, that that NATO upped its defense spending. Russia has been upping its defense spending too, pouring money into military modernization, both at the conventional and the nuclear level. But NATO in uh, Wales in 2014... Uh, gave an investment pledge to uh, spend 2% of GDP on defense. It was this defense investment pledge that was so frustrating for President Donald Trump because he couldn't get the NATO allies, all of them, to step up to it, and Germany was a special frustration for Mr. Trump. I just want to note how this crisis, again, has changed NATO in terms of driving it together and getting countries like Germany to step up to those commitments. And this past weekend on Sunday, the German chancellor gave a very, it was a remarkable speech to uh, to uh, the German public and said, look, we are going to be spending 2% on GDP, which is huge. It's a huge GDP in Germany. And that means that they will be really modernizing their armed forces. So NATO is being driven into tighter coherence, Defense spending, I think I've seen across the NATO alliance commitments to higher defense spending. This is all very good. Poland, I think, is committed to 3% of GDP. So there's a real move now to pay attention for the long run to what needs to be done to deter and defend Russia. And that is going to be all important because this is going to last for a long time. And uh, finally, I would say in the immediate period, in a more tactical moment that we are in now, NATO is actually pretty well prepared to deal with a uh, possible spillover in air incidents and sea incidents uh, from uh, the invasion of Ukraine because it practices all the time. Since um, Crimea in 2014, NATO air policing has been operating out of the Baltic states, and they are very well practiced now at turning back Russian air incursions and making sure they are safely escorted Back out of NATO airspace. So that's just an example, but NATO has definitely been preparing for this moment in many ways, both tactical and now looking at the longer term too.
1: Well, thank you. That's, that's good, to, good to hear. Um, and I think the the questions of escalation go sort of well beyond conventional war, spilling over into neighboring states. And so, Gloria, I'd like to turn to you and, and with your experience working with WMD and on arms control issues with Russia, what concerns you most regarding the risks of other kinds of attacks? How should we prepare, and what unexpected ways might this conflict spread?
0: Well, thank you, Carla. And um, I will just say, uh, we have seen a level of Russian uh, veiled and not so veiled threats about using nuclear weapons. And I think That is perhaps the most dire uh, uh, concern that many people have about the possibility of this war escalating. Uh, There are other issues related to NATO and so on uh, with regard to escalation. But Uh, just let me start by saying the Russians have the largest nuclear force in the world. Uh, They have not committed themselves against the use of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons play an important role in Russian military doctrine. Russia did not, for example, sign the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons that came into force last year. Some people think that he made the threat that he made uh, a few days ago, uh, as the war in Ukraine began to seem more difficult than he'd expected. But to me, it looks as though waiving the nuclear threat Uh, may have been part of his plan from the beginning. You remember that uh, there were some nuclear uh, systems tests that went on uh, right before the war was launched, right before the attack was launched. And then, of course, uh, a few days ago, he uh, raised the alert level of uh, Russian nuclear forces. Uh, I believe it's to DEFCON 2. Uh, and made the statement about whoever tries to hinder us will face consequences that you've never faced in your history, which seems like a fairly clear reference to nuclear weapons. Nobody is exactly sure what that means or what it could mean, the use of tactical nuclear weapons against NATO, the use of some type of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, the use of strategic nuclear weapons against the U.S., an empty threat, an actual intention Uh, But it is very worrying and very disturbing. Um, I should say I woke up this morning uh, very pleased to see Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia uh, saying, uh, making a public statement that Russia has no thoughts of nuclear war. Uh, That appeared to uh, back Russia off from Putin's statements a few days before. It was very nice to see someone in the Russian leadership exhibiting some prudence. And a footnote here is that that may indicate some worry and uh, dissension going on among perhaps some of the more responsible members of the leadership in Russia about the extent, extent to which Putin has gotten out on a limb here. Nonetheless, the fact that Putin made those statements is of great concern. Uh, he Putin is violating many different agreements on, on many different levels, many different international agreements. Uh, Ukraine did have nuclear weapons, as my colleagues here and most people know, um, uh, at, prior to the via, the breakup of the Soviet Union, they had nuclear weapons on their territory at least. And uh, when they gave up those weapons, about 1,700 nuclear weapons, uh, there was a an agreement signed between the U.S., the United Kingdom, Russia, and Ukraine, Uh, called the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, stating that if Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, none of the other parties would threaten Ukraine and would respect its territorial integrity. So on many levels, Russia is violating this agreement uh, as well as uh, waiving the nuclear threat. The fact that they have done that uh, is, I think, creating some uh, concern by the U.S. and NATO about keeping a very bright line uh, stating that we won't commit troops, that NATO will not enforce a no-fly no zone. Uh, I think uh, there have been some promises of fighter aircraft to provide to Ukraine, and I don't know it, that at this point they are actually being delivered by those who have promised them, all because of the concern uh, to not see this conflict escalate, not engage NATO, not engage the U.S. directly, and keep that line uh, Hope, with the hope that there will be no escalation to a nuclear level.
1: So thank you, Gloria. Rose, you wanted to comment on this as well?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to give a brief two-finger to Gloria's comment. I did want to remark, Gloria, that uh, the Treaty to pr- Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, none of the P5, so-called nuclear weapon states under the NPT, signed that. But what the P5 did, the uh, weapon states are UK, France, uh, uh, sorry, Russia, China, and the United States. What they did do uh, in January was to uh, all agree to a statement that nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. This is a statement originally made by Presidents Reagan and Gorbachev back in the mid-1980s. So I do think it's important at this moment to remind the Russians of of this recent pledge on their part, number one. But number two, you might have noticed earlier in the week uh, the Minister of Defense, uh, Mr. Shoigu was reporting quite openly to President uh, Putin that the number of personnel at command posts for the nuclear forces have been raised. And this seems to me, from uh, from reading between the lines, to be what so far has happened, because actually the, the missile forces are, are on high alert anyway, and the U.S. missile forces are on high alert. What they have done seemingly is to bolster personnel at the command posts for the nuclear forces and also for the, the strategic, as they say, strategic offensive and defensive forces. So that means they're missile defense forces as well. And that's my understanding of what, what has happened. I'm not sure, Gloria, I would characterize it as as DEFCON 2. I don't know if they go by those same uh, terms that, that we do.
1: So President Biden's response to um, Vladimir Putin's raising the nuclear forces to special combat readiness, it was pretty public. He publicly said he wasn't wasn't too worried. Um, but I wonder, sh- should we be worried? Or is this and is the president, you know, making a public statement um, to try and reassure? But at, but at the same time, should we be concerned?
3: I think our deterrent uh behavior has been very good up to this point. I'd be interested to hear what Steve and, and Gloria uh, think about it. But the way I think uh, the Pentagon and the White House has been handling this has been uh, has been deft. So, Steve, what do you think? Yeah,
2: Steve? Yeah, I would actually contrast. I mean, I thought that Mr. Putin's uh, statement uh, on Sunday was uh, wholly irresponsible. Uh, there was no threat to Russia that justified that. And I would contrast it with a very responsible statement uh, attitude that uh, Secretary of Defense Austin took, where yesterday he postponed a test of the Minuteman ICBM because he thought this was the kind of thing now when there's a sense of crisis that could be subject to misunderstanding. Uh, so I, I think the uh, administration is handling this just about right. Yes, agree,
0: well, so that, agreed. Well, Ver- very, very, very well done. Agreed by this administration.
1: So let me raise another question um, and something that's been discussed a little bit in, in the press, and then we haven't, we haven't seen too much um, evidence that this happening. But um, has Russia used cyber warfare against Ukraine? They certainly has in the past, um, certainly has used it um, in Georgia. And is there any evidence that cyber warfare has been used in recent days or weeks and had an impact that goes beyond Ukraine? And I leave it open to whoever would like to take that one on. I'm happy to start us
0: off. Um, My understanding is that prior to the invasion, uh, Russian hackers defaced and took offline some Ukrainian websites, uh, attacked Ukrainian government systems with malware, Uh, They have not, as far as I know, taken down critical infrastructure in Ukraine, which possibly uh, they could be uh, able to do. Uh, Some people are speculating it's because they are using some of the critical infrastructure for the invasion. There have been uh, counterattacks. Uh, Ukraine and its friends uh, outside the country have fought back. They took down the Kremlin website. I've been uh, checking that uh, recently, and one cannot get the Kremlin website up on the Internet. Uh, they also have um, uh, taken down – they took down the Gazprom website and also the Russian space agency Roscosmos. Uh, now, the latest in this tit for tat, the latest thing that's happened is that the hacker group Anonymous has declared war on Russia. Uh, and now there's a Russian uh, hacker group called KillNet that's trying to disrupt Anonymous. So it's it goes back and forth. Um, there is, I think, danger for the U.S. and Europe that we need to pay attention to, uh, critical infrastructure, our business, uh, financials, and other systems. Uh, and I, am, I know that we are paying attention to defensive measures in that, in that area.
3: I think it's fascinating. If I could just add a quick comment, I, I think it's fascinating, and this will be long studied, I know, but the fact that we have, you know, cyber warfare, we always, and, and at NATO, we were always thinking about it as that kind of hybrid warfare, but it was always the focus on government, a government uh, perpetrating that hybrid action. And indeed, we saw many, many attacks while I was at NATO uh, from Russia on on NATO uh uh sites and and nato capabilities but now we've got this mix of non government hacktivists and now with the russian side diving in as well on this it's a fascinating phenomenon and I, and i think is going to be <laughs> worth probably a lot of uh, a lot of study and a number of phd theses probably
2: yeah and potentially it could be risky i mean to the extent that the russian and ukrainian governments are exercising some modern moderation in their cyber ca- ca- attacks, you know, could something by a non-governmental actor trigger escalation and, and then have this thing get ratcheted up in a way that perhaps Moscow and Kiev did not intend?
1: Yeah, interesting questions. So let's turn for a moment to, to within things happening within Europe. President Putin has clearly been trying to prevent Ukraine from joining the European Union as well as joining NATO. And, Steve, you pointed to this at the beginning of our conversation. And President Zelensky, two days ago, signed an application for EU membership and has requested a fast track to membership. So is this just a symbolic act of defiance on his part, or is there more to it than that? I mean, the EU is clearly different from NATO, and yet there could be some benefits to Ukraine joining the EU even now. So what might that actually entail and is it even likely? And are there some military benefits as well as economic ones that might come from Ukraine to Ukraine as a result? And Steve, maybe I'll start with you on this.
2: Yeah, um, no, I, I can understand Ukraine's desire to join the European Union. Of course, this predates the current conflict, uh, but I think it's plainly unrealistic. Now, what might happen, which uh has not happened, is it might be that the European Union can create a membership perspective for Ukraine, because even in that association agreement, it did not have language that suggested that Ukraine might one day aspire to membership. But when you look at what it takes to join the European Union, you know all of the uh, legal changes, the regulatory changes, I mean, these are thousands and thousands of pages of regulations to make your internal norms and rules consistent with those of the European Union. And Ukraine has made some progress, but they've got a lot to do. I think there's a second problem that uh, works against Ukraine, and this is that Ukraine still has a relatively weak economy with a relatively low uh, gross domestic product per person. And so a country like Ukraine coming into the EU, that makes a huge demand for the central EU development funds, which right now go to the the former central European countries and, and some to southern Europe. And my guess is a lot of members would sort of be worried about that, that until Ukraine improves its economy that it would soak up all of those funds that now go to other EU countries. So my guess is that it this was unrealistic. But what I would hope that would come out of this would be a firm statement by the European Union that yes, when Ukraine can meet the criteria, it Q can expect to be a member and be welcomed as a member because the EU for 30 years has not said that.
1: Well, interestingly, um, there's there's I, I heard uh, what late yesterday that Georgia had also now signed it Signed an application to join the European Union, so it's an interesting ripple effect. Uh, Rose or Gloria, do you want to comment on this question? I just I just want to make a really
3: quick comment. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, Putin has, has driven uh, NATO together, and the coherence and the common purpose of NATO is very strong. But it's also done the, the same thing for the European Union. Uh, you know, we've seen, for example, uh, Hungary and Poland, who were very much, you know at odds with Angela Merkel at the time when the immigration crisis happened in 2017 and have stood very firmly against immigration. They are the ones who are throwing open their borders to the refugees from Ukraine. And so everybody in the European Union as well as in NATO. There's, of course, cross-membership in each. It's driving them together. It's driving the two organizations together. When I was DSG at NATO, it wasn't always easy for NATO to cooperate with the EU and vice versa, but we were getting slowly better. Now I just see them driven very, very tightly together. It was not, uh, I think, by accident the other day that Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, went to NATO to announce the uh, the special uh, action that the European Union had agreed to to place some additional constraints on on Russia as serious financial sanctions and I think that was a very good move. I just heard this morning by the way that the UK foreign secretary was being invited to the EU foreign ministers meeting and that's the first time since Brexit that she has been invited to go back to the EU headquarters so it's also driving the UK back to the EU again and this is a very interesting phenomenon not something of course that Putin could have wanted I suppose.
1: Well, so to come back to, to, to Putin himself, I, I do have a, a question about diplomacy, and Steve, you raised this as well. It, it, is diplomacy a dead end at this point? Um, Putin seems to have used it initially as a means to sort of deflect and delay as he readied his forces to invade. And now that the invasion is in full swing, what purpose might negotiations serve for Ukraine and Russia? And since both Steve and Rose, you've both been involved in track two negotiations and Gloria as well um, with Russia behind the scenes. Uh, may I ask if there are any signs that this kind of diplomacy might be possible to get, to get us out of this crisis? Who wants to take that
2: one? I'll start. <laughs> no, I think um, when you go back to December, when Russia proposed these two draft agreements, one between the United States and Russia, the second between NATO and Russia, it had a number of demands that NATO and the United States were simply not going to meet. They, they, they were not going to agree to withdraw military forces from the countries that joined the alliance after 1997. Those forces were relatively small. They were not going to agree to forever ban further enlargement. But there were elements, in both the United States and NATO picked up and said there's some arms control measures and risk reduction and confidence and transparency measures that actually, if the side sat down at the table, first of all, you know, we know how to do this. We did this in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. But those measures would make a genuine contribution to security in Europe, including the Russian security. But the Russians kind of wiped that away and said, well, no, no, you didn't respond to our other demands that NATO not enlarge.'" And that's one of the things that's left me pessimistic, you know, about the Russian readiness to negotiate. And I have to say that over the last couple of weeks, and certainly since last Thursday, you really haven't seen any rhetoric coming out of Moscow that suggests there's a readiness to engage in a serious way. Now, it has been good. Uh, Today, Ukrainians and Russians met for the second time. Uh, I think the one positive thing came out is there appears to be, at least, besides reporting some agreement on establishing some humanitarian quarters to allow the float of food and medicine into cities that are encircled. But but again, you know, it's, it's really, it's treating one of the consequences of the conflict. It's not treating the root of the conflict. And, and certainly, given uh, what Mr. Putin has said, and I think even in some of the, an interview I think he did today, he's not showing any sign of being ready to negotiate. He really, I think, is fixed on seeing what his military can do. So I, I think the the West and Ukraine should be ready to negotiate, uh, but uh, it really can't be a serious negotiation until Moscow comes up with a more serious approach.
3: I'll just add: I think the, the I agree with Steve. It was good today. What apparently they were able to begin to agree in terms of the humanitarian quarters. There was some question left open by the Russian. Side whether they would be willing to put in place firm ceasefires to ensure the the safety of those quarters, and that that too will be necessary. So, uh, I hope that that could be the case. But there have been some interesting developments this week. Um, One is uh, the fact that uh, Emmanuel Macron has been trying to stay in touch with Putin. Uh, He seems to uh, feel that he might be able to get through to President Putin and get some messages across. I think. I frankly think that is important. There needs to be some high-level communications uh, with the Kremlin, with President Putin. I know it's, I know Macron was very frustrated and even angry today after his 90-minute phone call with, with Putin because Putin is still, as Steve said, uh, being very firm and tough, that he's not ready for any diplomacy. The other interesting phenomenon this week is that uh, uh, the foreign minister of Ukraine, Kuleba, called his counterpart in Beijing two days ago, and there was some... Indication that the Chinese may be willing to enter into a role of some kind of facilitation. I haven't seen anything yet about that. Uh, Today, the Chinese were, again, very tough in terms of uh, uh, criticizing the enlargement of NATO and that, that type of thing. But that's an interesting, perhaps, phenomenon. The third thing I'd like to say is that uh, in this terrible war in Syria in recent years, where there's been no love lost between the U.S. and the Russian uh, troops operating there, even sometimes some very dangerous situations where they've they've brushed up against each other. Nevertheless, we have had an ability to communicate during this period through the use of communication lines at various levels, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff down to a more, again, uh, operational level. So perhaps this is a time to be thinking about some efforts to communicate with the Russian Ministry of Defense drawing on that precedent. I don't know, maybe the United States administration is already doing that. And uh, so I'm offering no background information here. I'm just speculating, given that recent experience, and even in the midst of that dreadful war, in Syria, which, by the way, in its violence, bears some resemblance to what is happening in Ukraine today. Nevertheless, the United States and uh, Russian militaries were able to maintain some lines of communication.
2: Yeah, I might add, I I think I saw a report today that, in fact, actually, uh, the uh, Pentagon and the Russian military of defense have established at least a deconfliction channel. Uh, So so I think that's a useful step, uh, because at least my understanding was it was actually quite effective in Syria and, and making sure that there was no misunderstanding. So uh, I think this could be a good step.
3: Good. I didn't know that, Steve. That's that's good to hear that they've said something publicly about it. And that's exactly what they called them in uh Syria deconfliction channels. So um
0: obviously all of the Russian uh justifications for invading Ukraine are nonsense the neo-Nazis and the drug-addled leaders and genocide going on in the Donbass, et cetera. Complete fabrications and nonsense. And I've looked a little bit, uh, you know, at the Russian allegations of genocide in um, the Donbass and the the grounds for their international criminal court dispute and so on, they're on very solid grounds. There have been observer missions there that have not found any genocide. However... Um, I don't think there's a deal to be made now. I don't think it's time to negotiate. Putin's not willing to negotiate in a meaningful way. When you look at the the tensions in the Donbass that were at least used as a pretext, but have been festering for a number of years, there are probably some things that can be done there. Uh, if this war recedes and if those areas become Ukrainian or quasi-independent or whatever, there's probably some better work that can be done there to resolve the issues that do seem to come up a lot between the Russian and Ukrainian populations in those areas. Just in terms of
1: long-term diplomacy, So this so this raises a this raises a question that I've been in thinking a lot about. There there are a lot of a kind of ominous comparisons of this invasion to the start of World War II in 1939. But one of the things I wonder about is in this comparison is that this conflict is unfolding in the information age. And Putin clearly has tried to manipulate public opinion to justify the invasion and the US and European nations were able to reveal a great deal of information about what was being planned and what kinds of strategies might be tried um, to undermine those efforts. And there, we are now getting reports from the front lines that are colored by those who are providing the information, as well. So, how important is the outcome um, of this, given that to the, to the amount of information that we have, and perhaps misinformation as well? Steve, you pointed to the sort of need for deconfliction at the, at the state level. But is there, is there a role for the information age in mitigating this conflict or potentially making it worse? Who would like to take that one on? Maybe...
3: Well, I'm happy we're winning the uh, the information war uh, at the moment anyway, and the very forward-leaning attitude of uh, the UK government as well as the U- US government in releasing, uh, releasing intelligence, I think, shaped that information environment uh, early on in the run-up to the invasion, and they've been able to hold that ground. Uh, Now, also, we have a large number of uh, people involved on the Internet. Uh, We have this open source intelligence flow going on where there's a huge amount of information coming off, uh, you know, YouTube videos, TikTok videos, etc. It's being analyzed and pumped out by some, some very good, uh, some very good analysts uh, and non-governmental groups, really. So there's, in addition to government intelligence being released, there's other information flowing that one can can place some confidence in. So I think we are at the moment winning the information war, and I didn't expect that because the Russians have been really masters of misinformation. And uh, again, we saw it again and again at NATO during the years from 2014 up to when I left in 2019. The information, misinformation warfare was part of their hybrid tactics. So I think that is a good thing. We've learned a lot since 2014. It is clear we need to keep learning, however, because this, this space doesn't stop evolving. It's evolving all the time. And from the Soviet era, the Russians and Soviets, were absolutely top-notch propagandists. So they uh, could get their footing again uh, rather quickly.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think I would agree with Rose. I I think the West is so far winning the information war. And one reason was because I think the Biden administration, it basically pushed the intelligence community to allow the release of some information that perhaps 10 years ago they would not have released. So they were able, I think, to sort of put the Kremlin back on its feet. I think the Ukrainians are also though coming up with some interesting uh, tactics in information war. So for example, and and this may be a little bit loose and fuzzy with the Geneva Convention for Treatment of Prisoners of War, uh, but when they capture them, one of the things that they've shown on video and showing this on video may be the problem, they give them a phone and say, FaceTime, call your mom, let her know you're okay. Let her know you're being treated well. Uh, And that's a way for the Ukrainians to get back to mother Russia that in fact, you know, there are soldiers fighting, yeah, I mean, the soldiers that I thought that the parents may have thought were going to Belarus for an exercise are actually fighting in Ukraine, uh, you know, and that their son uh, is now in captivity. I think that may be a way to sort of start getting the information uh, past sort of the official channels in Moscow uh, that, you know, this war may not be going as well as the uh, government would like to portray it in Russia. There are also, I think, some just really interesting uses of the internet and, and Twitter and Google, um, I, I've seen on Twitter, I mean, and this is both in English and Ukrainian now, you know, how to make a Molotov cocktail. You know, that information has gone around. There was one TikTok. There's been a really interesting phenomenon that I was a bit unsure of the first time I've seen it. And again, you have to take what you see on social media with a big grain of salt. But I've now seen a number of reports about Ukrainians, both military and civilian, simply finding abandoned equipment. You know, the for a tank, you know, perfect running order. It hadn't been hit, full fuel, and the crew just left it. Uh, they found armored personnel carriers. Uh, I think yesterday they, they found a very advanced Russian air defense, a Pantsir air defense system abandoned. And so that somebody's actually put a TikTok out. It's a young Ukrainian woman saying, this is how to drive a Russian BTR. That's an armored personnel carrier. This is how you drive it you know, so that you can take it back to Ukrainian lines. And all of this information is sort of going out and including also uh, uh, a thread that was put out both in English and Ukrainian, which was basically how to fight in an urban warfare if you are one of these civilians who's taken up weapons and are prepared to defend a, a major city against a Russian invasion.
0: You know, an, another, another aspect is the way that information is reaching Russian people. Uh, There seems to be a real generation divide uh, with the older generation reliant on government-controlled state media and hearing the Putin line, but younger people in general having access to the Internet and social media – and being completely able to completely go around the propaganda essentially being put out by the state sources and forming a pretty different view in terms of uh, supporting the war. Uh, much more skeptical, uh, much more likely to say Putin's not t- telling the truth. And um, one would hope to see perhaps uh, a, a greater variety of views within Russia as a result of this and perhaps ultimately a shift in Russian policy, and uh, who knows, perhaps beyond that in Russian leadership.
3: Rose, did you want to add to this? Just a real quick two-finger once again. I wanted to comment on, on Steve's remarks. You know, President Zelensky has proven to be a master of the information space as well, and it shows, I think, his confidence as a performer. But, you know, when he said the other day to the Americans over the weekend, I don't need a ride, the Americans were offering to evacuate him. I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. You know, he turned into a global hero immediately. And he said today to Putin, Hey, I don't bite. Are you afraid to meet with me? Let's meet. You know, those kinds of messages going out, for one thing, they must make people in the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin himself grind their teeth. But he's showing, I think, that he does command that information space. So that was one quick comment. The other, I was very uh, amused today back to the mobile phones calling home from the young Russian soldiers. Apparently, uh, the MOD in in Ukraine put out today that they, they would be allowed to go home, the prisoners of war, if their mothers came and picked them up. I don't know if you've heard that confirmed anywhere, Steve, but I just thought, wow, now that's a masterful move, as well.
2: Yeah, I was just one last comment on Zelensky today. Uh, they released an opinion poll. His approval rating in Ukraine is now ninety three percent. He really, uh, I think, has come into his own as a wartime leader.
1: Yeah, it's 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 amazing how how calm and cool he appears to be in the face of this. Um, well, so thank you. Uh, Gloria, you actually answered a question that came in from the audience about how much untainted information uh, Russian people are getting, and we are starting to get some questions from the audience that I'll that I'll bring up. Um, uh, one of the questioners is asking why we didn't send more sophisticated air defense weapons earlier. And I would add to that, coming back to the comments you made, Rose, earlier, um, the extent to which... Um, not just not just NATO countries, but European countries, the United States have pledged all kinds of military aid and support to Ukraine in the last in days really. And I'm just wondering how likely it is that this military aid at this point is going to make a difference. Is it kind of too little, too late? Um,
3: well, one thing I know, and I've been talking to Polish colleagues, non governmental people, just in the last day. Uh, Poland is serving uh, a really positive role as a conduit, a place, a kind of jumping-off place for getting military equipment into uh, Ukraine, uh, helping with along with some of the other NATO countries uh, to ensure that that military supplies, ammunition, particularly, is getting into Ukraine. Now, there's no, there's nothing like a good crisis uh, to get people uh, to to finally focus and pay attention and get themselves in gear. And that is what has happened here in some ways, unfortunately, because there was hesitation among some NATO member states to uh, really give much in the way of, of defensive aid to Ukraine in terms of, of munitions and weapons and, and so forth, Uh Germany. I mentioned the problem of Germany earlier before they turned around this past weekend. They were ridiculed somewhat for saying they would send 6,000 helmets to Ukraine, but that was it. They weren't going to give lethal aid of any kind, but that has changed completely now. So in a way, uh, we are playing catch-up, but I do see that at least the NATO allies and the European Union separately are resolved now to uh, continue uh, the provision of, of military equipment and, uh, and ammunition to Ukraine so they can keep
2: up the fight? Yeah, on your on the first part of the question about sophisticated air defense systems, I think the problem is, uh, you know, if you were being, talking about systems such as a, a U.S. Patriot surface-to-air missile, you know, those are very effective, uh, but it would take the Ukrainians months to learn how to maintain them, operate them, and it, it, it's really a very different system from the sort of Soviet-style air defense system that the Ukrainians have. So there has been a lot of provision by the United States, by other NATO countries of Stinger surface-to-air missiles, because those don't require much training. It's kind of point and shoot. Uh, but I think some of the more sophisticated weapons that obviously the Ukrainians could use right now, they really can't be provided in time for to have an impact on this on this fight. So on the, f-
1: on the flip side of this, um, there have been a lot of reports that the Russian troops are poorly prepared and poorly supplied. Um, So if the conflict drags on for more than a couple of weeks, that the invasion force really won't be sustainable. Should we put much stock in that assessment? I'm asking you to speculate. Let's hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. I
0: I tend to see a little bit of a sort of a self-encouraging tendency in the media to say well here are the russian weaknesses and you know that they we keep, they can't be confident of prevailing and so on i think what we've seen is terrific devastation wreaked by russian forces and the use of terrible weapons and so i wouldn't be willing to predict i think they need a strong opposition and fight to hold them back and turn them back, I don't think we can congratulate ourselves by saying we think that they're weak and poorly trained.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I agree with that,
3: Gloria. So we shouldn't in any way take uh, take confidence away from what has happened. It is clear they apparently thought that they could achieve their blitzkrieg uh, in a short period of time. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense today provided some documents Classified documents left behind, wherein the Ministry of Defense and apparently the Kremlin uh, thought that they could get this all done uh, in two weeks' time. Well, we're already into week one, and they're not going to get it all done in two weeks' time. And so they did not think about what they needed to do to supply food and fuel to keep their their troops going. And so I think that's a real problem. Now, they they misjudge the logistics seriously, and that is a a terrible problem. It's a terrible problem for morale, I'm sure, at the moment. But I'm I'm not saying that they could not overcome that. And the way they have overcome it this week is by pounding the cities with artillery and air power. Uh, So uh, that's how they're trying to deal with their poor logistics, is they're just using missiles, planes, rockets.
1: So before we move on, we actually have a, a one question from the from the audience that's related to this, and it's about that stalled column of troops and tanks that are heading towards Kiev. Um, is there any information about whether this is lack of supplies, a supply chain issue, technical problems, a reluctance to move in? I haven't heard any anything beyond the speculation in the media. Ran out of gas.
2: Yeah, no, it, yeah, it could, it could be supply problems. I saw a really interesting piece, and, and again, but this is somebody who seemed to be fairly knowledgeable. And what he basically had argued was that uh, they had found this um, Russian air de- a Panzer air defense uh, vehicle. It's it's a, it's a, a tra- it's a truck vehicle that has both surface air missiles, but also anti aircraft guns, and it's a fairly scary weapon. And it was sitting in a field, abandoned with the tires blown out. And he basically made the observation, he said, you know, if you let a vehicle like that just sit for a while, and some of this equipment was brought into areas near Ukraine back in April, he says, if you let it sit for a while, like eight months, <laughs> things like that happen. Uh, he says, like in the U.S. military, when you have equipment stored, I mean, there's a regular maintenance program where they, they turn the engines on once a month, they move it, they rotate the tires, they park the vehicles in a way so the, the, the tires are not exposed to direct sunlight. But his speculation was that a lot of those, when you look at those vehicles on the road, they're not out in the fields. Uh, And that it may be that they have to stay on the road because if they go into the fields, because of the pressure changes, they may blow their tires. Uh, And I would have to say here that the Russian military is really, really lucky that the Ukrainian Air Force doesn't have, say, a squadron of A-10 attack aircraft. Because those things are just, it's an incredible target set there that the Russia, at this point, the Ukrainians really just don't have the capability to strike at as hard as it could be.
1: Okay, thank you. So, so let's, let's turn to some of the other, the other things that are happening around this. Um, there, Gloria, there's, there's fairly universal condemnation of Russia's actions um, coming from the U.N. General Assembly vote, from mass, to mass protests that are happening in major cities around the U.S. and Europe, and even in Russia. So does this kind of public display of outrage and opposition have an important role to play here? Well, I encourage
0: either of my colleagues to chime in as well. I do think there's a growing consensus um, Certainly the U.N. General Assembly vote, very interesting to see who voted which way on that. But um, pretty good consensus there, 141 votes to censure Russia and demand their withdrawal. Uh, even uh, China abstained. Uh, China has just taken an action uh, as uh, one of the principles of a an Asian development bank to uh, prohibit any further loans or activities in Russia. And so China is beginning to show a little more cooperation. So I think it's turning into a pretty wide consensus. Um, I think it's mainly important for the sanctions, um, which are starting to bite in Russia. Uh, It's certainly... Some of the countries that are part of this consensus are providing direct aid, military aid, and so on. So I do think it bites not just as an expression of public of 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 uh, many countries' attitudes, but where those countries individually and as groups are taking actions that have a specific impact negatively on Russia.
1: Does anyone else want to add to this? So to, to take this a step further, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the role in international institutions might play here. Um, the United Nations itself, but the International Criminal Court, there's been some discussion about war crimes and about um, international pressure being brought to bear on Russia. Do you think that this is an effective line of attack, Um And I guess I would ask the sort of the larger question, which is, does this sort of flagrant assault on national sovereignty and territorial integrity raise questions um, about the international order that we have had really since World War II? Um, And that's a big, big question, but one I think that we all should be thinking about. I
3: absolutely agree, Carla. And Honestly, I think that is why this fight is so important. And it includes, although no boots on the ground, uh, from NATO countries inside Ukraine, but all uh, the other ways in which the global community uh, is engaging in the fight through sanctions, economic action, trade and export controls, and condemnation. I think uh, what the UN General Assembly did uh, in in its vote was, was very powerful. So I think we have to make it clear that these are principles that are worth fighting for because otherwise, humanity is heading precisely in the wrong direction. So, I, I do think it's very, very important. I wanted to take note, though, in terms of international organizations, of one organization that people may not have noticed much. And it, uh, it's because uh, of the strong fighting today around Zaporozhye, which is where the major Ukrainian nuclear power plant. Uh, facilities are with a number of reactors there for producing electricity. And the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency today, Rafael Grossi, appealed to Moscow, to the Russians, to take their fighters back, to move them back, to get them away from the power plant The last thing we need is a nuclear power plant accident. So he uh, issued that appeal today, and I 100 percent support him. He's also issued an appeal on behalf of proper protection of the Chernobyl site, which the Ukrainians have had to report to him officially is now no longer uh, under the authority and control of Ukraine. It's being held by the Russians at this point. So I think it's also important what these other international organizations, much you know, very focused on their missions, uh, much less known internationally perhaps, but they are also trying to play a responsible role. And, and I could not endorse more what Rafael Grossi uh,
1: said to the Kremlin today. Does anyone else want to comment on this?
2: Well, just a second what Rose said, I mean, I, I think it is very important that uh, Russian action be resisted. I mean, this is the 21st century. This is Europe. And we're, what, a few days away from a city of three million coming under siege by an, by an army. And so I think to the extent that the West can push back, it's also about preservation of a system of norms and institutions that have served the transatlantic community and, and the broader West very, very well. So there is an extra reason, I think, to be resisting Russia on this.
0: And I I do think the two courts are important institutions, international courts in this area. So number one, as I mentioned, the International Court of Justice. Uh, Ukraine has some smart lawyers uh, because they they immediately filed a dispute about Russia's uh, charge of genocide, and they're on completely firm grounds. The UN... Human Rights Commissioner has been monitoring the situation in the Donbass and Crimea. They have not found any genocide. So these reports are evidence that Russia's contention is false. And so I think they will win that uh, case. Um, and then the International Criminal Court, uh, if somebody is deter- determined to have be a war criminal, then there are penalties for that. You know, uh, the person can be Im- imprisoned and even put to death. And so if Putin were designated as a war criminal, again, how do you implement that? I don't know. But I think both courts uh, taking action on this could have a major impact.
2: Yeah, let me add, I, I wonder if the Ukrainian lawyers, I agree, are quite smart, thinking about a broader action against Russia for damages, because you're seeing a huge amount of damages. And one result of the sanctions is over $400 billion in central bank assets of Russia are now frozen in Western financial institutions. So, you know, before it would have been hard to get at that money. There's actually now perhaps a way, if they want a judgment, and my guess is that the Western countries would be very sympathetic to that cause. You know, maybe they can go after that $400 billion. Well,
1: so this, this brings up... Um... The one area that we haven't really focused on yet, and that is the, the economic sanctions. And they are clearly unprecedented. Um, and one of, the, one of our um, audience asks, um, how much influence do, does or do the oligarchs actually have on Mr. Putin? And are we wasting our time a bit and in, in trying to, to uh, tie them down on, on the economic front? How effective are these sanctions?
3: Well I think the sanctions are very effective uh, because they have quickly uh, you know tanked the ruble, closed the stock market, and uh, led to severe already economic crisis in Russia that will up the ante and raise pressure on on putin and and his cohort in the in the Kremlin so I think that they are very important, the coherence, again, of uh, the countries around the world who are participating. And it's not only countries in Europe, but countries such as Australia, Japan, etc., cetera, also very uh, far afield, but participating in these, uh, these sanctions and other uh, economic pressures. So very, very important. I did want to underscore, again, the importance of uh, the export controls, placed on particularly on semiconductors, they are going to shut down Russian defense industries, shut down uh, basically the high tech sector in Russia, and I think lead to some real uh, some real drag once again there 's already a huge drag on the on the Russian economy, but they have had a, a proud innovation sector and i 'm afraid now what we will be looking at is a real drag on on Russian uh, science and technology and innovation so uh, in maybe in a global sense, that's not a good thing. Uh, they can do a lot of good in terms of, of their contributions, as they have historically to to science and technology. But it's the way it has to be right now until uh, their leader comes to his senses.
2: Yeah, and there's yeah. an additional impacts. Uh, I think you know, both Boeing and Airbus have said they will no longer send spare parts to Russia, and they will cut off, uh, I guess, the uh, digital provision of maintenance information, and I think with modern jets now and, and Russian air, airlines, both for international flights, but also domestically fly a lot of Boeing's and Airbuses. But uh, once you begin to go four to six weeks without having the availability of spare parts and the maintenance uh, provisions, uh, you begin to run into safety concerns. So they may find themselves with a domestic airline industry that doesn't have much that it can safely fly if this thing drags on very long. That's a
1: good point. So I'll play devil's advocate for a moment and just ask the question of whether or not the economic sanctions could backfire and that they put put, push Putin into a corner. Um, And I think there's also some indication that it could lead to a backlash from the Russian population who are suffering probably more in in the immediate term from the the sanctions. Anyone want to take that?
2: It's not just the fact that the ruble lost 30 percent of its value on Monday but this will trigger inflation, uh, it's going to make day-to-day life a lot more difficult. And I feel a bit bad about that, but then I look at the images of what you know people are going through in Ukraine. I spoke to a, a former uh, empl- Ukrainian employee of the embassy uh, last night. Uh, of course, it was just the morning in Kiev. Uh, uh, she'd just woken up. Uh, ten air raid sirens last night for her. Uh, there's a lot of Ukrainians who are going through a whole lot of grief. That are spending times living in bomb shelters and subways. And a lot of Ukrainian civilians have been killed. Uh, so I guess in those circumstances, while I have some sympathy for the Russians and how they're going to suffer economically, uh, you know, it's not as much as it might otherwise be.
1: So we're coming to the end of our end of our time, and I did want to ask you each to share your thoughts um, about the human tragedy that's unfolding in Europe and the hundreds of thousands of people who are fleeing their homes and their homeland and getting separated from their families and permanently scarring lives. Um, And I know that the people who have joined us uh, here today are interested to know what they can do, what we can do to help. So if you have any thoughts, um, places to recommend that people can can do things to help deal with the humanitarian crisis, I'd love it if you'd share them now. Rose, do you want to go first? I've actually put together a, uh, a comprehensive
3: uh, list of charities uh, that are helping the hum- humanitarian uh Action That's going on. Huge efforts going on again with uh, Poland uh, as a jumping off place for humanitarian aid going in and also providing for the refugees coming out inside Poland, inside Hungary and other European countries uh, and European countries as well as Airbnb are throwing open, apparently, their homes and, and uh, apartments for people to be able to stay for a while. The European Union has said it will allow Ukrainians to stay in the European Union for three years uh, with uh, basically not having to you know go through a, a more bureaucratic process. So uh, I think that is all to the good. Um, I will uh, send to Gloria um, and you, Carla, my list, and you can make a decision whether for your audience this is appropriate but it certainly has gotten uh, a lot of very positive reaction from my uh, friends and colleagues and and family so i'll make sure i get that to you
1: thank you that would be wonderful steve do you have any additional thoughts
2: uh no i, I think you know what we're witnessing really again it's uh horrible and uh i spent three years living in kiev it's a beautiful city And sort of watching the images of places where I've been being pounded by Russian bombs, and these are places that are not military installations, Uh, you know, this is a disaster. It's a disaster brought on by one person. Uh, But uh, we should look for ways to try to ease the humanitarian uh, consequences of this. And uh, ideally, of course, the the quickest way to do that is for the Russians to stop the war and and, and bring the troops back out of Ukraine.
0: Gloria, any final thoughts? I would just add to Rosa's thought uh, there are several omnibus lists of different aid organizations. And one that we've been looking at is we stand WWW. We stand with Ukraine. Uh, And um, I just would mention the Commonwealth club is a nonprofit. We don't have a lot of money to give to other people, but we've been thinking about what we could do. And we've decided to offer some of the aid organizations ads on our podcast, which have millions of downloads a year, uh, providing their information to those who want to donate. And we're, we're looking at the organizations, and we will soon uh, make that uh, part of our podcast, with, which does not uh, cost money for a nonprofit to do. So um, the digital world offers us uh, approaches uh, that, that can help.
1: Well, so with that, may I just say thank you to all of you for giving giving us your time this afternoon. Thank you, Stephen Pfeiffer, Rose Godemuller, and Gloria Duffy for joining us today. And I'm Carla Thorson, and this Commonwealth Club program is now.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.